everybody. Welcome to uh, Talks with Tony. I'm uh, thrilled to be talking to Ben Rhodes. Uh, I like to call him my friend. He is a bit of a legend, uh, political commentator, American writer, former deputy national security advisor for strategic communications, and of course, speechwriter under President Barack Obama. Good evening, Ben. Good to have you on the show. Hey, Tony. Yeah, good to see you, man. How you doing? Can I, can I ask the very first question, firstly? What does Deputy National Security Advisor mean? So I was a bit of a multi-purpose aide to President Obama for all eight years that he was in the White House. So I wrote his speeches. I oversaw all of his communications on national security and foreign policy, but also the U.S. government's. So what is the State Department saying? What is the Defense Department saying? Uh, but then also being a deputy national security advisor means you sit in the White House, you brief the president in the morning on the key national security issues, but then you also participate in the development of policy um, through the different agencies of the U.S. government, through the advice you give to the president. You're basically responding to whatever the crises or issues are that are around the world and formulating options for the president to consider. And then in my case, because I was in the White House, you know, sitting in the room with him when he made decisions. And it's just foreign policy or is it foreign issues or do you talk about American issues? So here's what's gotten really interesting, Tony, in the last 10 years, including the eight years that I was there. It used to be just foreign policy. So what's our policy towards the Middle East or Asia or Russia? But increasingly, national security doesn't respect traditional yeah. dividing lines between foreign and domestic policy. So when I was there, we dealt with immigration policy and the U.S. border. We dealt with cybersecurity issues. We dealt with pandemics and epidemics like the Ebola crisis under Obama, because these are things that started abroad yeah. and then affected the security of the United States. So the very idea of national security has changed and is changing in the United States to not just encompass terrorism and foreign relations, but to encompass cybersecurity, pandemics, immigration, these things that hit closer to home. And, and where does it sit in the hierarchy of things? Where does a national security advisor sit in the hierarchy of, of government? I think that the national security advisor in the U.S. system is arguably the second most important person after the president in our system, because you have a tremendous amount of agency to shape how America engages the world and how America thinks about the very idea of security. If you look at domestic policy, there's a, a huge array of agencies that work on that. It's not centralized in the same way the national security is. So the national security advisor is literally chairing meetings on a daily basis with the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the leaders of the intelligence community, the CIA and others. Uh, and has a lot of freedom of action to provide advice to the president and to shape how the United States engaging every country in the world. And, and so that's been an increasingly important and powerful role in our government for the last 70 years. But in particular, in recent years, as this idea of national security has evolved to encompass a lot of things that touch upon 
you know, life inside of America. I think it's become an incredibly important position. Ben, you know, this, this, I'm so excited about this interview, to be honest, because there's so much I want to ask you um, because you have such a wealth of information. I know how you think. And actually, you're a globalist. And obviously, America's people's views of America has changed so dramatically after the Trump administration. And so it'll be great to uh, hear your views, because I know what you think about the world. And it's fairly similar to me. But I want to go back to the beginning. You know, you, you come from a very high-powered family. Your, your brother was a star in uh, the television world. You went to a very prestigious university. Tell me about your university life and, uh, you know, about that specific college that you went to. And was it always in your mind that you would end up in, a, in, in government, in politics? Well, Tony, it's interesting. I mean, I'm a white guy from America, so I have a lot of privileges. But I have in my family the kind of unusual diversity of America in the sense that I have a Jewish mother from New York City, you know, classic immigrant family. And then I have a Christian father from a small town in Texas who came from nothing, you know, who basically made his own way, you know, first in his family to go to a good college and become a lawyer. And you mentioned my family. So my brother and I, it's just me and my brother, my parents instilled in us from a very early age, the idea that whatever you do, you should be engaged in public life. You know, you should care about things that are happening around the world. This country, America, as flawed as it is, created both of our stories, created my mother's kind of immigrant Jewish story and my father's up from the bootstraps from a small town in the middle of nowhere story. And so my brother you know, became, as you mentioned, a media executive. He ran CBS News in the United States. He helped run Fox News. So we're on different <laughs> sides of the ideological spectrum. Right now, Tony, he's in one of your old stomping grounds of London, uh, working for Rupert Murdoch, right. which, you know, obviously I would not do myself. But I mean, the basic idea was that we're lucky, you know, we're lucky that we're Americans, we're lucky that we've had opportunities. And therefore, you are obliged to be a part of what's going on around you and to, to be engaged in what's happening around the world. And so even though my brother and I disagree about a lot of things, the one thing I know we've always had in common is this idea that just sitting out, you know, what's happening in our country and our politics around the world was not something that, you know, our parents let us get away with at the yeah. dinner table when we were 10 years old. That's fantastic. And ever since, you know, we've not been able to get away with it. So was your mother a Democrat and your father a Republican? So my, my mother was a liberal Democrat uh, worship the Kennedy family. My father was a Reagan Republican. Um, but interestingly, and it, you know, it speaks to, you know me, Tony, I'm a pretty partisan Democrat. Yeah. But my dad was a Republican from Texas, right? Yeah. I mean, they had guns. They were, <laughs> you know, they were part of the whole Reagan revolution. He abandoned the Republican Party under Trump. I mean, uh, even before that, he was, you know, he liked Obama, but he was so offended by Trump. And, and I think it is important for people around the world to understand that there are people like my dad, right? Like, you know, an older white guy in his late 70s from the South who just didn't sign up for this, you know, like this, the kind of outward racism and xenophobia that we saw under Trump has turned off, you know, people like my father, who's from a small town in Texas. So, you know, America's always it's a little more complicated than it looks on the outside. Yeah, I mean, I know many Republicans like your dad who were big Reagan 
uh, followers. How has COVID affected you? You know, for me, it's been a massive disruption, you know, personally, because I used to travel a lot and things. But but the, the biggest thing is I have small children. And yeah. being home for a year with a four and a six-year-old, you know, is and seeing the impact on their life. I mean, where I'm the angriest at our government response is I think about my kids. And, you know, they were subjected to a much more, I don't know, dangerous set of surroundings and desperate set of circumstances and 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 in a degree of trauma that was unnecessary because of what you say because people did not want to listen to anything the government said and when Trump was president the government wasn't saying anything conservative anyway and we were all kind of left to ourselves mm, you know mm. and and so uh my personal experience has basically been like yes the the challenges of being home with a four and a six year old all the time because schools have been closed time management <laughs> Uh, time lost, thing experiences lost, but but what I think about the most is like how is this going to stick in my kids' memory? Yeah. You know, like how is a four and a six year old going to process this very odd experience where they think it's dangerous to be around other people? Yeah, you know, yeah. and they don't quite understand what's going on. Look, I've seen you with President Obama. He's obviously very close to you. How did you first get to meet him, and did you ever think he would be president of the, of the United States? Well, I I didn't meet him until early 2007, when I, I had already been doing some work for his campaign, I've been writing papers for them and even drafting articles for, for them. And he was running, but he was the underdog. I and mean, people forget Hillary Clinton was the overwhelming favorite. And I was asked to come with no notice to a session where he's preparing for a debate. And it was like one of the very first debates he had with Hillary Clinton and the other Democrats. And I walk into this big room full of consultants and um, I was terrified. And he has this habit of calling on everybody in the room. And mm. Tony, you as a manager, you know, CEO, entrepreneur, you know, you, you get that they're different management styles. And one is, you know, you call on everybody, even the, you know, young person cowering in the corner, you know, and he called on me and it was a, a question was about the Iraq war and whether he should vote as a senator to support funding for the Iraq war. And a lot of his advisors are saying, yes, you have to vote for the funding because, even if we don't like the policy, you know, you don't vote against funding a war. And he called on me and I was terrified, but I, I didn't know what else to do except say what I thought, which is why would you fund a war you don't agree with, basically? <laughs> and he liked that. And he came over and he introduced himself to me. And, and I don't know, I, I've been wrong about a lot of things in life, but I had an instinct immediately that this guy was going to be president of the United States. Yeah. I, I don't even know why. I can't even fully explain it. When I moved out to Chicago to work on his campaign, when he was 20 points behind Hillary Clinton in the polls, my now wife, then girlfriend said, um, she was pissed because I was leaving uh, uh, the apartment that we shared. And she said, well, at least he'll be back in a few months when he loses, you know. <laughs> and and as she reminds me often, she's been right about everything in our relationship, except this one thing. Yeah. <laughs> I had this instinct about him. Yeah, that, that that's an amazing instinct. Look, look, you know him very well. What have you ever had fights with him? Strong disagreements? Can you disagree with the president of the United States? I had. It's interesting you say that though. I, I had fights with him, but you can't win <laughs> the <laughs> argument. You know what I mean? So I've had I, I've had times when I pushed back once, pushed back twice, pushed back a third time, maybe even got a bit passionate, but then you know. When he signals to you that this conversation is over, it is over, you know? All right. And, 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 and that's the way it should be. I mean, you, he should hear your pushback. He should hear that you disagree. But 
at the end of the day, you're not there to to win a debate with him. You're you're there to help him figure out how to do the best job he can. Yeah. Was it fun? Was the eight years fun? Yeah. Was was he a good boss? He was the best boss I've had in my life. I don't think he yelled at me once in eight years. If he was disappointed in you, you'd kind of know and you'd feel like, oh, I better do better. I don't want to let this guy down, you know? Yeah. He'd have your back, you know, if you were being attacked. He put a lot of weight on your shoulders in a way that made you want to do better. Yeah. You know, he yeah. was that kind of, that manager that he got more out of you because you didn't want to let him down. Yeah. And you thought he valued your your opinion and and you thought he trusted you and you thought that, you know, you had the the space to even make a mistake because he wanted you to stretch. I had fun, although I forgot to have fun for stretches of time. And right now, the advice I give, every, I know every one of these people that's gone into the Biden administration because yeah. there's a lot of Obama people. And the last piece of advice I give every single person, whether they're 23 year old becoming somebody's assistant or, you know, uh, a contemporary becoming the national security advisor is don't forget to have fun because actually the most important reason beyond your mental health is you'll be much better at your job yeah. if you're having fun. I was best at my job when I was enjoying myself. And that's, when I was angry and dissatisfied, that's when I made mistakes. That's all I tell people in my company. You gotta enjoy coming to work and you gotta have fun. Otherwise life's very boring. Ben, you know, you wrote a lot of the president's speeches. How long did that take you? So the Nobel Peace Prize speech, um, yeah, that was really daunting. And what was crazy about that experience is he had to give another major speech about a week before. So I was working on that. And then I gave him this draft of the Nobel Peace Prize address, and he didn't get back to me for a few days. So I worked hard on this draft and, you know, felt really good about it. But he just, you know, he's busy. He's present. Uh, you know, people think that these speeches are all cooked and done early. No, he, he had, had no time to read it because he's actually governing the country, not thinking about his Nobel Peace Prize address. Yeah. And he calls me into his into the Oval Office the morning that we're going to leave for Oslo. And he had stayed up most of the night and handwritten the entire redraft of the speech, but not in the, like a speech you could deliver, but like it was, here's what I want to say. Yeah, and he handed yeah. me about I don't know, eight to 10 pages of legal, you know, yellow legal pad writing. And I spent that whole day writing the draft of that speech. And I couldn't even think and be stressed. Like people ask me, how do you deal with the stress? You can't think about it. You're so stressed that you can't think about it. Just like, I, he's going to be standing in a podium delivering the speech. I have to write it. And we got an Air Force One and we flew overnight to Oslo. And I stayed up the whole night. I didn't sleep on the plane. And he didn't sleep for most of it. I was giving him drafts and he was editing it, handing it to me. And I give him another draft. Stayed up the entire night. Uh, land in Oslo was making edits up until the moment he walked onto the podium. So the crazy thing about that speech is I only worked on it for, for a couple of days, <laughs> but it was, it was, you know, the most high intensity speech writing possible. And, and it's the highest wire act you can think of Tony, because having done a bunch of, you know, a lot of speeches that would be watched around the world, like I'll ne you know, the audiences for those speeches and the care with which people would watch those words is a totally unique experience. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and, and so, like, I let's just say I, I don't get as stressed as I used to about other things. <laughs> <laughs> Were you involved in that first inauguration speech he did? Yeah, 
That was, I mean, I, I didn't really know Barack Obama. I was in Vietnam at the time and I turned it on and I was just like, wow, who is this guy? That was the most powerful speech for me as a human that moved me so much. You know, it was just full of hope. And, and it was so I fresh. always tell people, I mean, this is not just me trying to give my boss credit. Like I, like if, if I was a speechwriter for, for, you know, John Kerry, like you wouldn't be talking to me about, you know, some great speech I wrote. I mean, Barack Obama himself was such a good orator, had such a powerful story and had such a clear kind of worldview that it allowed me to you know, stretch. It's probably like being a songwriter for a great artist or yeah. something, right? You know, yeah. like it allowed me to, to do things that I never could have done with somebody else. And I believe that those speeches are really important because I thought about this a lot after Trump got elected and people were saying like, how do you feel about your legacy being taken apart, you know, policies you yeah. worked on being... And I, and I thought about it and I said, you know, my, the president that I idolized as a kid was John F. Kennedy. And I couldn't name you that many policies that, you know, he did. And I wasn't even alive, frankly, obviously, <laughs> when he was president. But I heard those speeches yeah. and they made me want to go into politics. Right. And so everything I've done in some way ties back to John F. Kennedy. And I've met people around the world who've told me that, you know, I, I heard a Barack Obama speech and I decided I wanted to start an organization or something. Or I decided I want to move back home and try to make them something better. Or I decided I wanted to run for office. And, and so the thing that makes me feel the best about that presidency is, is not like a healthcare law or, or you know, Paris climate deal, as important as that is. It's what are all the people going to do yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. who are inspired by those speeches? Yeah. What is that going to add up to? Yeah. And that suddenly, that's transformative. That takes 20 years, 30 years, right? But that, that's, that's actually my theory of change more than even a particular government policy. I, 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 you're so right. And that's why I highlighted that. And I wanted, I wanted the audience to hear that. What's Air Force One like? For, for listeners out there, you're one of the few privileged people to fly Air Force One. Yeah, and I flew more than a million miles in Air Force you, One. I wow. went, I went on every single foreign trip Obama took as president. Is the so, food good? I mean, so here's the thing: it's not as nice as you think it is. <laughs> the, the Air Force One that Barack Obama used, I think, was commissioned under George H. W. Bush. Right. So it had that kind of you know early '90s feeling, a lot of like brown leather interior, you know. And it didn't have like the spaceship quality technology that you'd expect, but it's also not like any other plane. There's a giant conference room where you're constantly meeting with the president of the United States and kind of briefing him and their phones on the table. They have okay food. It's made by uh, the military. So what, <laughs> I actually really like the food, but it's like the funny thing that we used to joke about on Air Force One is that because it's military cooks, they feed you like 9,000 calories, yeah. you know, it's like steaks and potatoes and, you know, really, really rich food because like, you know, that's what they eat. Yeah. Right. But I'm just some staffer who's going to sit at a desk all day, but it's, it's a fascinating kind of flying community because in the front, you have the senior staff of the president in the very front, there's an office for the president. Then in the back, you have guests, then you have press, then you have secret service. So there's this kind of flying apparatus mini, mini that government. kind of sustains the U.S. government, yeah. right? And that covers U.S. government and protects U.S. government. And you land in a, in, a, in a foreign country, and that all just kind of moves off the plane and into a motorcade. And so you have this feeling of traveling, you know, with, with the, 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 the full kind of power and weight of the U.S. government. And I felt this personally, Tony, because in the motorcade, I would ride in the car 
with the military age who had the, the nuclear football, you know, like oh, the, yeah. Yeah. the suitcase with the nuclear codes. Yeah. And you're just thinking like, well, I don't think we're going to have to use those, but they're in the car. <laughs> you know? And and what kind of seat did you have? Look, I'm an airline man, so I need to kind of, you know, we're low cost. But uh, what kind of I, seat? So here's the thing. I want to tell you something, Tony. Because of the kind of 1990s quality I was talking about. Yeah. Um, and we were always terrified to do anything to improve Air Force One because the, I think in part some of the racialized, frankly, criticism of Obama, if he spent a dollar refurbishing Air Force One, it'd been like, oh, what is Obama doing? Yeah. So the seats, Tony, did not lie flat. They were, <laughs> they were, they like were these old, kind of clunky, old Pan Am seats. Yeah, they were old Pan Am, these clunky, heavy leather seats that would kind of go back maybe halfway yeah. um, and weren't that comfortable. Yeah. And so I have to say that a business class seat on a lot of airlines is actually better than the seat yeah. you get on the airlines. I actually slept on the floor. Um, <laughs> we'd do these long haul flights to Asia where we'd have to wake up and go right into some summit. Yeah. And and I would leave my seat, I'd sleep on the floor. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, just to let you know, AirAsia's uh, premium seat is lie flat. So, uh, oh, well, that's why every should fly AirAsia. <laughs> and uh, did you ever ride with the president in that, the beast? Oh, uh, all the time. I mean, every time we, every time we get to a foreign country, I'd always ride with him. He liked to be, you know, he liked to kind of chat with yeah. me. And the beast is an impressive thing. And, and what I think, you know, people need to realize is that when we fly to a foreign country, they would fly that car, the beast to that country because there are many who, different. Who makes that car? Who made that car? GM or someone? I think, yeah, I think it's like a Cadillac or, you know, it's right. definitely an American car maker. Yeah. And it's a heavily armored limousine. So like the, the door is like, you know, two feet thick or something. And yeah. it takes like some <laughs> you can service guy to open it for you. But it was very weird. You could land in, you know, Tanzania or Malaysia or Cuba and you get to the bottom of the stairs on the tarmac and there's the exact same limousine waiting for you. Yeah. You know? Oh, you mean it would be as you came down, it would be already there? It would always be at the end of a long red carpet yeah. with an, a secret service agent holding the door open. And, you know, Obama thought it was a little bit over the top. There was a very imperial quality yeah. to how the American president traveled. It was. And tell me, those secret service guys, did they ever say anything? Have you ever talked no. to any of them? No, <laughs> never. Well, I mean, I got to know them. I changed pleasantries. But what was interesting is that, so you ride in the beast. And you have pretty, you know, intimate conversations with the president. Like we we leave a summit, for instance, and he'd talk about, you know, his meeting with Putin or what happened in the press conference at the end of the summit or what's going on back home. And always in the front row, there were two heads, right? There was the driver <laughs> and the guy in the passenger seat. And these guys heard everything, you know, I mean, they heard every single piece of gossip that the president shared after an international summit or a bilateral meeting or what have you. And they never, like, not only did that say anything, like their heads didn't yeah. move. You, know? <laughs> no. it's like, you, you, uh, you see yeah. it on TV and you see it on, the, uh, on all these movies and you wonder whether, I mean, the president is such an affable person, right? And, yeah. And it just seemed bizarre that he wouldn't have a relationship with some of them, but it didn't appear to be. So, Tony, you, you'll... You might get this as someone who's once in the music business. So like Obama, one time I remember we were at a particularly gaudy summit in Southeast Asia. And so we're leaving an ASEAN summit and it's got like some water fountain in front that has got neon lights shooting into the air. And it feels kind of almost hip hop yeah. in its uh, you know orientation. 
And Obama gets in the limo and he takes out his iPad and he puts on Thrift Shop by Macklemore, right? The, the <laughs> yeah, rap yeah, song. Yeah, I know, yeah. And he turns it up to like, I, somehow this is the loudest iPad I've ever heard. And he's like, we're in the backseat and it's me and him and Susan Rice. And I think we probably had a couple of glasses of wine. And, you know, so, and we're doing the whole thing. Like, yeah. you know, I'm going to rock right now. <laughs> and, and I'm just looking at these two guys in the front seat and thinking like, what are these guys thinking? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like you got this black president in the back, you know, playing a white rapper, you know, like we're all like singing this thing at like 11 o'clock at night in Southeast Asia. And, uh, you know, those, but those guys kept their, their poker face on as, as we like. Trump, is Trump finished or is he just beginning? I, th- I think he personally is finished. He'll still have a lot of influence over the Republican Party for the next couple of years. Who he chooses to support in Republican politics and primaries will matter. But he's got a massive legal cloud over him. He's going to be fighting off criminal prosecutions, civil actions. He's getting older. As big a figure as he was and as popular as he is in the Republican Party, by the time he left office, he was one of the more unpopular presidents to leave office in recent American history. So I, I, I really can't see Trump himself reemerging as a presidential candidate, for instance. But I do worry that Trumpism um, will continue to shape yeah. the Republican. Yeah. Did, do you think he was an actual racist or do you just think he used it? I think he was an actual racist. I mean, there weren't very many black people in his, in his cabinet. But. Yeah, no, I mean, I think he was an actual racist. I mean, there, there's the obvious point that, look, this is a guy who started his political ascent in 2011 by claiming that the first black president wasn't born in America. But even beyond that, Tony, look, I'm a New Yorker. I mean, in like the 1980s, when I was a kid, you know, Donald Trump was taking out ads in the New York Times demanding the execution of the so-called Central Park Five, uh, a group of black teenagers. Oh, yeah, yeah. What's the documentary? Yeah, yeah, who were wrongly accused accused, of of committing a crime they didn't commit. So Trump's got a pretty long track record of stigmatizing black people, people of color in the United States. And look, you know, I, I think we shouldn't try to normalize or rationalize the things he said and did over mm-hmm. the last decade that clearly targeted people because of their ethnicity or their race. Yeah, I always wondered whether he was an actual racist or actually he just used it. So it's good, good to get your perspective. Just going back on the finality of this, is someone going to take this, this Trump role in the Republican Party if he's not the guy? I mean, you said you're I mean, they're going to try. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at every single person who's a possibility, you know, to be the Republican nominee, the next presidential election, all of them are people who are trying to be like Trump. Yeah. You know, they're all populist, right wing, grievance based politicians. However, you know, some of my friends are like, oh, you know, this is going to be terrible because what happens if there's a Trump who's smarter than Trump and then they'll be able to actually take control of the government? But the the thing is, Trump was pretty uniquely charismatic, yeah. <laughs> and it's not a charisma that you know may have appealed to you or me, Tony. But <laughs> you know, he was—I mean, he was in Americans' lives for for a long time because of The Apprentice, and he—he's not like anybody else. He's—he's he's a one of one, and a lot of these other Republican politicians who try to act like Trump will fail. You know, they're fake, and and yeah. people can sense that. And one thing I've learned in politics, Tony, is like authenticity 
is worth everything. Yeah. And you know, Barack Obama, totally authentic. There's not another person like Barack Obama. There's not another person like Donald Trump. There's not really another person like you know Joe Biden, for that matter. And the Republican Party can try to run its Trump play, but I'm actually optimistic from my perspective. That's going to be a little harder than they think without a frontman like Trump who can captivate so much attention. Yeah, you've, you've really summed it up so well, Ben. What was it like being an American in the Trump era? And what is it like now? Well, for me, you know, it was my first experience feeling, you know, I'd been at the center of political power for eight years. And the only thing I can describe about leaving the White House on January 20th, and, and I flew across the country with President Obama to drop him off on his final flight on Air Force One in California. And I flew back on this empty Air Force One. I mean, Tony is like the weirdest experience in my life. There were like five of us on Air Force One with usually like 100, <laughs> 200 people. And we land in DC. And, and from that point on, I felt like an exile, you know, in my own country. Right. And, and I've had the privilege of meeting people from all over the world, you know, and people who've lived in countries where when you fell out of political favor, you know, that was really bad. <laughs> you were going to be investigated. You were going to be torn down publicly. You know, you were going to be attacked. And that was suddenly happening to me, you know, right. personally and, and to a lot of people around President Obama. And so it's a really revelatory experience that, in a way, made America feel more normal, right? Because this kind of thing happens in a lot of places. And in a healthy way, I think it made me question a lot of my assumptions as American, mm. as an American, where you take for granted that things are going to be okay, you know, that that there's a guardrail there's a check and balance. Uh, around what leaders could do. Yeah, you know, there's institutions and there's protections. And for a few years, it just felt like maybe there weren't. Yeah. You know? And and that was really interesting and it made me in a weird way, it made me privilege more being an American, you know, to care more about the freedoms I had and the, the assumptions I could make about how government was going to be and how society was going to be. Now, now that Joe Biden's in office, I feel some relief, but I also know that, you know, in four years, it could go back to that, hmm. right? So I'm more vigilant. I'm a much more vigilant citizen than I ever was before 2017. But Ben, I just want to go back to what you said earlier about coming from a liberal family and stuff. I was talking to Will I Am, who's obviously a, a close friend of you guys as well, and has become a close friend of mine. And, you know, he said something about blacks, uh, the black societies, kind of set up to fail. And I've always wondered why, where there are divides and uh, gaps in society, people don't look to bridge that wealth gap. And that bridging that wealth gap also means the education gap and and facilities and all that thing. Is black America set up to fail? Why are all the jails in America predominantly blacks? Um, you know, why is it so hard to get out of that, that life? Why hasn't any president, including President Obama, uh, you know, isn't there a better way of trying to solve those issues? Well, I mean, look, I think if you look at American history, every aspect of American life was in some way literally set up to subjugate Black people. So, you know, moving beyond even slavery and segregation, housing, you know, housing laws and regulations were written in a way to push Black people into certain neighborhoods and drive down their property values and keep them out of other places. And so therefore, they don't have the the housing security and the the investment that comes from the 
a home in a certain neighborhood, schools. Uh, after desegregation, Black people were kind of pushed into schools that were not invested in in the same way that white majority public schools were invested in in this country. And, and you can literally go through kind of every aspect of how public policy intersects with people, um, drug policy. So the enforcement of drug laws in black neighborhoods versus white neighborhoods. Yeah. I mean, Tony, I know friends of mine in high school who got busted with marijuana and you know, they're white kids who went to collegiate and they got like a ticket. Mm. And if they were a black kid, they would have been thrown in prison for years, mm. you know. And, and so you just stack it up. And the whole structure of American society was built to disadvantage black people. Mm. And that's not something that can be fixed with one policy. And it's something that requires like a, a steady and sustained effort to change policy. Do you think he'll ever change? I mean, America. Yeah, America I mean, has I, built on, been built yeah. on diversity. You know. No, I, and I've thought about this a lot, obviously, the last few years, and, and in the White House too. Here's how I kind of shorthand this: America's always had two stories. It's a country that was founded on this document that said all people are created equal, and that document was written by a guy who owned slaves. You know, yeah. and throughout all of American history, there's been this incredible incredibly powerful, progressive story of basically the promise and possibility of a multiracial, multi-ethnic multi democracy where anybody could thrive and anybody could succeed. And this is the country that produced Martin Luther King and that produced, you know, the Black culture that shapes America. I mean, yeah. how much of American culture is infused with the Black American experience? And there's always been an incredibly white supremacist and reactionary story that was seeking to, to claim and hold power for a small number of people. Mm. And look, we fought a civil war about this and we had a civil rights movement about this and we go back and forth and push and pull. And, and the reality is it can look really confusing from the outside. But at the end of the day, what you have to realize is because America is made up of people from everywhere, America has the good and bad of people from everywhere. Yeah. And so- yeah. We are all those things. We are the country that could elect a black person, which, you know, I go to Europe and I don't see any country in Europe ready yeah. to do that. You know, yeah. we're also the country that could pass laws in Georgia that the Ku Klux Klan could have written, you know, yeah, like correct. literally aimed at preventing black people from voting and having any political power. And we're both of those places, I think, and hope, and the optimist in me wants to believe that. America tends to get things wrong until we get things right. And, yeah. you know, we, we, we screw up and, 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 and we, we do the wrong thing, but, but then ultimately enough people say, no, this is wrong and we should actually do the things that we say we believe. You know, we believe people are equal, we should actually do that. And so I, I remain kind of hopeful that the better story wins out in the end. But sometimes your belief in the better story can blind you to the yeah. horrible inequities and problems yeah. uh, that are still here. And, and, and I think Trump has, you know, made a lot of us realize that we can never look away from the uglier part of America if we want to pursue the better America. What would you like to do in government, having been at the highest levels now? What do you think you, where could you make a difference? It's, it's great for young leaders to, to listen to your perspective of how you can affect people's lives, what would you like to do? So it, it, it sounds, a, you know, it can sound like a cliche, but Obama has advice that, that I really believe in, which is don't think about what you want to be, think about what you want to do. In other words, like, 
my aim is not necessarily to be the secretary of state or something. You know, I was incredibly... You'd be a great secretary of state, by the way. Well, it, it, you know, it, not that it wouldn't be fun, but I was incredibly <laughs> moved to, to have that task of, of normalizing relations with Cuba. I negotiated those, those you know, the, that process. I'd like to just, I'd like to do tasks. You know, I, I'd like to be told, you know, like, take on this diplomatic mission, you know, uh, take on this project. I mean, yeah. that, that to me, Go and is, fix the what Middle is so East. exciting about government is that capacity to do something you can't do anywhere else. You can't negotiate yeah. a nuclear deal or, uh, you know, a normalization <laughs> of relations with a country like Cuba. And so for me, it's less about a job and more about like, I'd love to have the opportunity again, someday in government to, to go out and do something in the world that just changes something yeah. you know, that fixes a problem that, that addresses a conflict, you know, that's the kind of work that I would love to do. Do you think, and, and obviously, look, I've met you through uh, the Obama Foundation and what you're trying to do, which is so so focused on the youth. Do you think, and, and if I look at, from my background before in music, I mean, music has been ahead of the curve in America. If you think, you know, right now in K-pop, if white kids go to Korea, and, and try and be a K-pop artist, they would be shunned, uh, uh, you yeah. know. But America, actually, in the music industry, you had Eminem, you had Vanilla Ice, and there was a fusion between black and, and white kids, right? Um, even country and Western uh, artists began to rap. Do you think the youth is the future for America? I mean, you're a big believer in the youth. Do you think they are softer than the older generations who are more polarized? Yeah, I mean, it's the thing that makes me the most hopeful. I interact with a lot of young people. You know, I travel around, speak at universities a lot, politically engaged, largely with young people. I, I just think that, you know, it's, it's usually the case that young people are a little bit more progressive than, and yeah. then they get older and that changes. But there's actually been a lot of research done in the last 10 years or so that, that, that right now, young people have views that are far more tolerant and inclusive and curious about the rest of the world and about diversity in America. And that those are views that are unlikely to change because they've just grown up in, in a different world, right? They, yeah. They've not grown up in a, in a segregated world. They've not grown up in a, a world in which they were prevented from accessing other kinds of culture. and. They literally just don't understand. If you looked at the, the response that young people had to Trump, they went from being politically apathetic to being highly engaged and mm. really making mm. the difference in the last election because they're like, this is not me. I don't want you know, this person representing me. And I think that young people in the United States are ultimately going to change the politics decisively in the next 10 or 20 years because because they're not shedding those views as they get a little bit older. But young people today, you meet someone who's 25 or 30 in Kuala Lumpur or London or New York or uh, Hong Kong or Singapore or, or any number of other places, they have more in common with each other hmm. than they have with like a 60-year-old person from their own country. You know, they, they, because they've grown up with the first truly globalized culture. Like you mentioned yeah. K-pop. I wouldn't have known what that was growing up in New York in the 80s, although I did know about AHA. 
And, but, you know, so they, 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 slightly closer than Korea. Yeah, exactly. But I I think that um, I I truly believe that the the young people, not just in the US, but globally, have such radically different views than their leaders. And yeah, that's, you point, you can point to cases in the past when that's happened. But this is a bit different because this is the first time in, in history that you have generations coming of age who literally grew up with a blended culture. Yeah. And I think that's going to transform politics. I just hope it transforms politics sooner rather than later, because I worry about the damage that nationalism can do in the, in the coming. So you mentioned, you, I mean, one of the things I hope the Biden administration doesn't forget, which President Obama did and you also drove, was a great engagement with Southeast Asia. You mentioned in your book that Southeast Asian region is a place of opportunity, given its diversity. You've seen Kamala Harris, obviously, with her Indian roots, very focused on India. Um, but I, I hope America doesn't forget ASEAN and Southeast Asia. But tell us why President Obama and yourself saw it as a place of opportunity, given its diversity. Maybe we could elaborate a little bit on that. Well, I mean, I think President Obama, like, you know, let's not forget I mean, oh, yeah. has right. deep yeah, Southeast yeah. Asian roots. Like he lived in Indonesia. His mother worked in, in Malaysia, Indonesia, and other parts of Southeast Asia. And, and so he knew it in his, in his bones, literally. But separately, just from a, an American interest perspective, if I look out at the world, you know, in, particularly in like 2009, we're coming to office, this is the most dynamic region in the world. I keep keep telling people that. Europe is what it is. They're fighting off the Eurozone crisis. You know, Latin America always has, you know, at any given time, success stories and stories moving the wrong direction. You know, China is what it is, which is a growing superpower. Sub-Saharan Africa, same thing, like some huge success stories, some huge, huge challenges. But I mean, if you look at Southeast Asia, if you look at the economic growth rates, the population growth, the cultural dynamism, the diversity, it just feels like opportunity, you yeah. know, and, and, and in this incredibly important geography of the world. And on the upside, if America wants new markets and new connections and, and new ways to think about updating the international order, you know, Southeast Asia has got to be central to that. But also like the challenge is like, we're not going to deal with climate change without engaging Southeast Asia. You know, the very complex relationship between the U.S. and China, Southeast Asia, for better or worse, for Southeast Asians is right in the middle of that. So I just think it's in this incredibly important part of the world. And ASEAN, you know, presents an opportunity for the U.S. to engage collectively. You know, so we can say, we're going to have you know different bilateral relationships with all of these countries. The idea that that we have an interest in Southeast Asian integration and cooperation, so as to better work with this whole region, was it was an exciting idea for us. Ben, you've written a book, which I picked up your book and I couldn't put it down to be honest. And my God, you wrote a lot. Uh, I recommend everyone to. <laughs> it's it's an amazing book and it's an amazing insight into things us normal people don't get to see. So go ahead and get the world as it is. But you're writing another book after the fall, being American in the world we've made. I kind of, I kind of asked you a little bit about what does it feel to be like an American. But honestly, when I read that title, what is the meaning behind the title of that book? And tell us about this book. 
Yeah. So I I went out in search of an answer to the question of what happened to the world. Why is authoritarianism and nationalism so prevalent and so on the rise? And so the title is me trying to make the point, you know, after the fall, this is kind of after America's fall as a country that thought of itself as separate from these negative trends or exceptional in some fashion. And being American, the world we made is saying that, you know, we have to acknowledge that we have a lot to do with these problems that we're seeing yeah, on the world. Yeah. We can't just blame them on, on Putin or Xi Jinping, which yeah. is what Americans like to do. Yeah. We need to look at ourselves. And at the same time, the hopefulness in that is when I meet people from all these other places, just like I said earlier, America's two stories, they're inspired by the better aspects of America. Yeah. And America is the one place, for better or worse, where, you know, it's made up of people from everywhere. And so if we can figure out what it means to be American, if we can have an identity that reconciles our differences, then there's hope for the world. Not because we're so big and strong and exceptional that we can tell everybody what to do, but just because we are a bit of an experiment as to whether people can figure this out. And, 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 and that's why I think having worked on foreign policy most of my life, I realized that the most important thing America can do for the world is not any foreign policy. It's just getting our own stuff together at home and setting a better example and setting a, a democratic example and setting an example for inclusion and tolerance. If we can do that, that's more powerful than any tariff we can put on China. Yeah. I mean, I'm so glad I asked you the question and I, it kind of leads back to while we were talking about the black populations and Asians and Indians, you know, and, and speeches. Um, and if America can sort itself out and be more inclusive and show on top of all the great things it is, and it is a great country, that's the best piece of foreign policy you can do. Um, and it's like those speeches you wrote for Obama still resonate in so many people's minds. It's not, it's not the policy. It's all those speeches that, that stick. If you say, what, 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 do you, what reminds you about President Obama? It's mostly the speeches and the social yeah. interaction and stuff. And we, we're, we're coming to the end of it. Look, you have many titles, writer, you know, NSC advisor, former Obama advisor, political commentator, podcaster, father. What best describes you and what you like to do? What do you, be, what do you want to be remembered for, Ben? This might sound strange, but, you know, I think at, at core, I'm an activist, you know, not in a bomb throwing sense, you know, but, but <laughs> in the sense that like, I'm, I'm always like, I'm always drawn by people who are trying to make things better. You know, I'm, you know, we, we work here down the Obama Foundation, you, you get in a room with some civil society activists who's trying to improve, you know, whatever circumstance in their community. And, and I'm excited by that person, you know. Or when I was in government, I was excited when we were changing things more than just kind of manning the ship, you know. And as a writer, as a storyteller, those are the stories I like to tell, too. I, I, I like and, and frankly, even when you get into the world of business, like the people who are trying to find new ways of doing things and trying to find new ways of reaching people, you know, th like that, that to me, that's what's animating. And Ben, final couple of questions. What do you reckon your proudest achievement is? Actually, before you answer that, do you think President Obama was a great president? Are you proud of those eight years? I do. I, I really, truly do. And I, you know, does, I, does it have, I, ha, could you, you know, you said John F. Kennedy was your hero and, and made a big impact on your life. Would you say the same of President Obama? Yeah. And I think people should, people can and should argue and find fault in things he did or didn't do. And that's, that's all true. But at the end of the day, I think 
you know, a hundred years from now, when people are looking back, there are those occasional political figures in the U.S. who kind of pointed in a new direction. FDR, JFK. I think Obama is one of those people. I think people will look back and think, well, that guy, he was kind of ahead of the curve. And, and what he's saying was was right. And he he set in motion a, a, a kind of a brand of politics that changed a lot when he was there, but also ripples out. I think if you look at the ambition of some of the things Biden's doing, mm. hey, former adversaries can reconcile. We can we can leave the mm. past behind Correct. us. We can try to do something that is right by both our peoples and the world. But I, as I as we've talked about in this conversation, Tony, like I, I think as I reflect on it more, the thing I'm proudest of is like, you know, the stories I told and helped Obama tell and the impact that had on people. You know, that it's harder to, you know, it's more intangible, but I, I have an instinct that if there's any young person out there in the world who is doing something today because of some speech I wrote, and that that thing that they're doing is is improving their their community, like what a privilege, you know. That's that's fantastic. Ben, you're you're an amazing guy. You know, I'm bound to say that on this show, but I really do mean it. The world needs more people like you. You're humble, you're someone who's achieved so much, but I, I seen you with my own staff, young kids and you yeah. treat you treat them with the same respect you would President Obama or, or any or any other leader that you came into. I could have done five hours with you. There's so much more I wanted to ask you. you know, well, uh, Tony, we, we'll have to get into your 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 history at some point on a different podcast. Yeah, there we go. Um, I didn't know you were a podcaster. Well, I don't really call my, consider myself one, but it's been a lot of fun. Ben, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for staying up so late, and I hope to see you soon. Thanks, Tony. It's great talking to you. Take really care. Bye. 